going to be in the book of Genesis. If you flip over to chapter 16, we're going to be in chapter 16 of Genesis. Um, we are continuing this series. We've started, we're going to be in all semester on the names of God. Um, and here is why those names are so important, I think. I talked about this when we went through the book of Ruth and Naomi. It is so easy when I get in difficulty for me to allow, I get so fixated on, fixated on that, for me to allow my difficult circumstance to define God. It is so easy to do. I think we struggle with that our whole life. And what we want to learn to do, and while we're learning about his names, is we, what we long for is that he would be the one who would define my life. And he would be the one, knowing who he is, that he would define the circumstances I'm going through. Um, so that's, um, that's why this is so important and while we do that. Um, we want his self-revelation to be the thing that influences us. Hey, and can I ask a question? If you can get that screen on back there for me with the PowerPoint, that would be helpful. If not, that's okay because I know sometimes that doesn't work properly. Um, but today, I do want to tell you, we're going to be doing something. We're going to look at an interesting name. We're going to be looking at a name of God that starts with El, Elohim that comes from Elohim. It's different. Most of his names we're going to look at in the Old Testament are compounds of Yahweh. So it's Yahweh something today is an L name. Um, and if you remember, I talked a couple weeks ago about that Elohim is just the generic category word for God in Hebrew. Um, Adonai is his title. It means Lord. Yahweh is his name, the I am. And so sometimes we encounter a, word of God, a name of God that actually comes from this God or the Elohim. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Before we look and dive in and look at that name, I want to uh, ask you an important question, and the question is this. Have you, ever, um, have you ever doubted God's care for you? Have you ever been to the place that you doubted His care? You weren't sure that He listened, that He heard, that He was really paying attention? Or have you ever thought, I think He hears me, but I think He just doesn't care for me, right? He gives me the cold shoulder, I talk to Him, but I'm just getting the hand. You cry out, but you feel like you don't have an answer. And if that's you, um, I just want you to know that you're in really good company. Um, David, who's been, he's been there. He's wrestled with those very questions. Many times he pleaded with God to be seen and heard and answered. In Psalm 55, 1 to 2, he said, Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught. In Psalm 86, 1 and 6, he says, Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry. And David frequently cried out to God in tears. It says that a lot in the Psalms. In Psalm 39, 12, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to by weeping. But you know David, even the great David who pursued God's heart, wasn't sure that he was heard. In Psalm 13, 1, um, sorry about that. In Psalm 13:1, he says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 22, 1 and 2, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David asked this a thousand years before Jesus. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. And in Psalm 44, 23 to 24, awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? And so this morning, I want to look at a story that speaks to these very questions. 
Does God see? Does he hear? And does he care? And we're going to, through this story, learn about another name. So it is in Genesis chapter 16. That's where we're going to be. Um, I want to very briefly um, set that up. So his name we're going to learn is El Roe. Okay, last week was Yahweh Rohi, but this one is El Roe. Would you say that with me? El Roe. Okay, and it means God is the one who sees me, the one who sees me. So before I jump into the story, just a little setup, if you don't mind. Um, God has called a man named Abram and his wife Sarai, who will later be Abraham and Sarah. He'll rename them later. Um, he calls them to leave their land, and so they leave the land of Ur, and he ends up calling them to Canaan, where they go. And he says, I'm going to take you there, and I am going to, um, when I take you there, I'm going to create a nation from you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all nations. All people on earth will be blessed through you. So they follow him. They go down into Canaan, and when he gets there, God reiterates that promise to give them a child. And they, ha they encounter a famine and have some difficulties, so they end up, um, we talked about this in September, they disobediently leave, not trusting God. They go down into Egypt where there's more food. A big mess happens down there, if you know the story. Um, we're told that he ends up, when he leaves, that the Pharaoh is wanting to get rid of them, so he gives them a lot of camels and cattle. He gives them male and female slaves to go with them, and they return back to Canaan. He gets back there. He has another encounter with God. And he says to God, he says, I don't have a son yet. You've promised it. I have this servant, Eliezer. He's going to have to be the one who's my descendant. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. And that's kind of the setup. And so what I would expect if I'm Abram and Sarah, Sarai is God said, I'm going to give you a son. And in my mind, I would expect that within a year, we'd have a son. Would you not kind of expect that that's what would happen? Well, if you're watching the movie version of their life, at this point in the movie, there would be a transition, and the transition would say this. Okay, he's 75 and she's 76 when the promise comes, and then 10 years later, Genesis 16. So she's now 76 and he's 85. So, Genesis 16, I want to start in verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, and it's probably somebody that she, he, they got back in chapter 12, okay, when they were down there in Egypt that was given to them. So verse 2, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. The Lord has kept me from having children. That's an interesting perspective. Kind of reminds me of Naomi a little bit. And so she says, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Go sleep with my slave. So after years of waiting for the son that God has promised, she's concluded that God's not going to act. And so she's got to take things into her own hands, and she's going to make it happen, right? Um, you ever do that? I'm curious. You ever get tired of waiting on the Lord, take things into your own hands? Um, so she gives the slave girl to Abram to bear a child. And to us, this seems like totally abhorrent, but I want you to know for them, that was common in their culture. If you could not have a child that you would, try, you would bear a child if you had a servant or a slave through them, and it would actually become your child legally. Um, so this is something that was very common. We look at it and we think, like, really, are you kidding me? I would never do that, and I would never do that. But we live in a different time and culture, and how many times do I cave to my culture and do things that God says that I shouldn't do? So we shouldn't be too hard on her. So continuing verse 2. So Abram agreed to what Sarai said. 
rather than provide the spiritual leadership that he should, he just passively acquiesces to her request, right? Okay, I'll go along with that. So both of them, their faith is faltering in God, and they determine that they're going to come up with their own scheme to provide a child, a son. So verse 3, so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived, and she conceived. Um, I need to say one thing here. Don't assume because this is happening in a story that God condones this. In fact, this is totally contrary to his way. I find it really interesting that if you were to read this story in Hebrew, a lot of phrases used in this story are the same phrases used in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve disobey God and don't trust him. So God is clearly saying, this is not my intent for them, okay? So continuing on in verse 4. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Maybe a better word is contempt. She began to show contempt on her mistress. So suddenly the relationship, she gets pregnant, the relationship's totally changed. Um, in their culture, the main way for a woman to get honor in their culture was, number one, to get married, but especially to bear children. If you bore children, that was the most honorable thing you could do. And so the, the thing that would bring the most shame and humiliation on a woman was to never get married in their culture, but especially if you got married but could never bear children. And that's exactly what's happened. And so Hagar ends up getting pregnant. And again, the way they thought about God back then a lot is God is putting his blessing on her because she gets pregnant, but Sarah, I can't. And so she begins to look down on her like I'm the favored one here, like I'm the one that's kind of more important. And she begins to show contempt. And I'm sure that the shame and humiliation for, for Sarai was just horrible, right? Can you imagine the shame and humiliation she felt? So verse 5, so then Sarai said to Abram, you were responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. The NLT I love, the NLT translates it this way, this is all your fault. This is your fault. And then verse 5, Sarai, sa Sarai said to Abram, you're responsible. Oh, I just we just did that, sorry. And then it continues, I put my slave in your arms. I put her in your arms, and now she is pregnant, and she despises me. She's treating me with contempt. So may the Lord judge between me, you and me, which when I read that, that's a kind of a meaningless kind of, I'm like, what's that mean? One commentator said the best way to translate that is God will get you for this. So that's what she says. You did this, you're responsible, and God's going to get you because now she's treating me with contempt. So verse 6 um, Abraham, again, showing really great leadership, spiritual leadership in the home, says, your slave is in your hands, Abraham said, you just do it, her, whatever you think best. He's just so quick to wash his hands of responsibility, just pass it off. Um, so back to verse 6, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and this word mistreated is a really strong word in Hebrew. If you were to look back, like on my page, chapter 15, I can see it in the same page as 16, um, in verse 13, here's what God told Abram about his descendants. Once he had a son and had descendants, he said in chapter 15, verse 13, he says, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. We know this is going to be Egypt, right? And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. It's the same word mistreat that's used in both places. And if you were to turn to Exodus and read all the things that happened to the Jewish people, in Egypt, and what their mistreatment was, you would understand this is a really strong word. And so she began to mistreat Hagar. Um, this word can be translated um, a lot of different ways. It can mean um, to oppress, to afflict, 
to treat harshly. It can even be translated to do violence to. I mean, she's treating her very harshly. Um, and so, continuing with the story in verse 6. So she, Hagar, fled from her. In Hebrew, it says she fled from her presence. I really love that. Fled from her presence. I mean, who wouldn't? Because if you put yourself in her shoes, this woman, Hagar, is in a totally powerless situation. She has no control, right? She doesn't even own herself. And here she is. She's being mistreated. And so the only thing she can do, she's in a foreign land, is just to run to escape, right? And so the story continues in verse 7 where it's actually going to turn a corner. So verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Um, I've got a map of that. The, the star is probably where they lived. And so she takes off on the road of Shur, and she's going back home to Egypt. Verse 13 is going to tell us that they're in the vicinity of Kadesh, so she's probably been journeying for two to three days. And I want you to know this place where she has, this is the same region where Elijah fled to last week. Do you remember that? And when Elijah fled, it's just this stark, arid, barren wasteland. It is a desert, okay? And she's alone, pregnant, on that road, a multiple-day journey going home. She was utterly desperate to get on a road to go through this alone. I mean, we have safe highways and highway patrol back then. They didn't have, I mean, back then, they didn't have that. We do now, okay? She was desperate. So again, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Well, look who shows up again. If you were here last week, this guy showed up last week, right? With Elijah, the angel of the Lord. We saw him shepherd Elijah, and I talked a little bit about him. I want to reiterate something, and I want to say a little bit more about the angel of the Lord. Um, anytime you encounter the angel of the Lord in the Bible, it is God himself showing up in person in the form of the second member of the Trinity in, Je in the form of Jesus. That's why a lot of Bible scholars and commentators call these appearances of the angel, the angel of the Lord a Christophany. It's Jesus who's showing up. Now, last week after we talked about that, there were a number of people who I talked to who had never heard that or didn't know that, um, had some interesting conversations, and it's nobody's fault if, you don't, if you've missed that, and here's why, because I think it's really, it is, I think it's poorly translated, to be honest, because it calls him the angel of the Lord, and when you hear the word angel... Um, what do you think of? This is what you think, right? In your mind, this is what showed up, an angel of God. In fact, all of the paintings of this encounter show an angel with wings with Hagar because that's what comes to our mind. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord. It says the messenger of the Lord. They've just chosen to translate that as angel. And anytime you encounter this, the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh, the messenger of I am, it is, it's Jesus showing up, okay? So, he shows up personally to her. And I love this. Look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai. And I totally love that because in this chapter, nobody calls her by name. Two times in verses 2, in verse 2 and in verse 5, Sarai calls her my slave. In verse 6, Abraham calls her your slave. Nobody back home calls her by name. But the angel of the Lord, Jesus, shows up and he says, Hagar, he calls her by name. I really love that. So back to verse 8. So he says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I mean, isn't that really cool? That's just like with Elijah last week. 
the angel of the Lord shows up, and instead of give, having a lecture or something, he asks her a question. I find that so cool how he always comes to ask genuine questions, and he wants to listen. So she responds in verse 8, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Uh, Pat and I talked a lot about that this, this week, why he would do that. We came up with several things. I mean, one, uh, I wouldn't want my daughter, if she was single on a desert highway, back in those times, right? It's probably the, the least safe place she could be. So he's sending her back to a place where at least she's protected, right? Um, and and he's, he's also, you're going to see, he's promising her presence with her. Um, and I think the other thing that's going on is, I mean, there's a couple things. I think as a parent... How many times I've had children that were going to, my children were going to do something or they're heading and they want to turn around and they want to run for them it and then I'll sit and I'll counsel them and console them but I kind of push them back into it, right? Because I know that they learn and grow in difficulty. So to me, probably that's going on. The other thing is she's had a lot of pride. She started looking down on Sarai with contempt and I think God is a little bit saying, I think you need to learn a little bit of humility so I'm going to send you back to this place that you've run from. So, Verse 10, then he makes her a promise. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Too numerous to count. Again, ever heard of this anywhere in Genesis, this language um, of being too numerous to count or increasing? Yeah, in Genesis 1.28, when God creates the humans, he blesses them. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Um, he tells Abraham in chapter 15, that when I give you this son, he's going to give you descendants that you cannot even count. They'll be uncountable. They'll be like the number of the stars. He's going to tell Abraham in the next chapter how he's going to increase, I, that he's going to have a son and he's going to increase his descendants. So God's giving the same promise to her that Abram is going to get for the son that God promised. So verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. So this is uh, kind of her big reveal party. Can you, I can imagine he brought blue balloons or something. You know, I've never been to one of those, but they're kind of a big deal now, I think. Um, <laughs> anyways, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael. Ishmael, and in Hebrew, the name Ishmael means God hears. Here's the name you're going to give him, that I hear. Isn't that cool? So continuing in verse 11, for the Lord has heard your misery, your affliction, your suffering, your hardship, even some of the violence you were experiencing back there. I have heard, and so your son is going to be named, I hear, God hears. And what I love is by God naming her son, he's almost like creating a living memorial for her. For the rest of her life, every time she sees him or she hears his name, Ishmael, she's going to remember of her encounter with the angel of the Lord, with Jesus, right? The incarnate God at this place meeting her in her point of need. She's always going to remember that because of his name. So verse 12, he says a little bit more about him. He says gonna, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He'll live in hostility towards all his brothers. Interestingly, wild donkeys lived in that desert that she was in. And they tend to live a very solitary existence. So he's saying, your son's going to be like them. He's going to be an independent guy living in no one's beck and call. He's going to be like a Bedouin. And then verse 13. And I love this. This is so great. Verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. 
And in Hebrew, it is El Roi. I now know you, and I know you by name. You are El Roi. You're El Roi. And then she says this. Um, you are the God who sees me. For I have now seen the one who sees me. Two really cool things here. Number one, she probably only knew him before this as Elohim. That's all she knew him as, just God, Elohim. And now she has this encounter, and she's like, oh, my goodness, you see me. You see me, so I realize that you are not just God, but you are the God who sees me. Isn't that really cool how she names him that? And then she says, because I have now seen the one who sees me. And so my question is, is when did she see God? Can you tell me? When did she see God? The angel of the Lord, right? When Jesus showed up, um, that's when she sees him. And what's really cool, so when she says, I've seen God, that's who she's referring to. Three times that occurs in here. I have seen you. You were here in my presence. I want you to know she had a personal, physical, face-to-face experience with the living God through this, the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And I love the language that's in here because he sees her, we see that, three times in this, but he not only sees her, he hears her, we hear, see the hearing in here, but he also acts, he's involved because he found her, you know, we just read about that in that, that song, his overwhelming, you know, his un, unending, overwhelming, reckless love that chases me down, it finds me, right? That's exactly what he did, and not just who finds, but who speaks, he shows up and He speaks to her on several different occasions. That's who this God is that we serve. So this God that she only knew before as Elohim, she now knows as El Roy, the God who sees me. Is that not really powerful? Is that not powerful? Because some of us need to hear that today. This theme of God seeing and hearing and acting, it's all through the Old Testament, but it's especially in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. In Genesis, multiple times, you will see a story of somebody in great peril, and it will talk about God before he acts, that he sees and that he hears. Two weeks ago, when we looked at God revealing his name Yahweh in Exodus 3, here's what God told Moses. I'm going to read. You can listen from chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, and verse 16. The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. This is El Roi. Our God is the God who sees. That is who he is. So back to verse 14 if you don't mind. And then it says this, that is why the well was called, and it's not beer, it's Be'er Lahai Ro'i, Be'er Lahai Ro'i, which literally means the well of the living one who sees me. So she names the well after him. Um, When I first read this, I was a baby Christian, and I'm going through Genesis, and I grew up in Hayes, Kansas, a lot of Volga Germans in Hayes, Kansas. And Hayes, Kansas was the number one county in the United States in beer consumption per capita. They had bumper stickers on all the cars, let's keep Ellis County number one. And so I'm re- the first time I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, that's why this well was called Beer Lahai. Oh, I'm like, hey, everybody in Ellis County would love this story like they call a well beer. But it's Be'er, okay. But anyways, and then it tells us it's still there between Kadesh and Bered. 
So what I, here's what I love. I love a lot about this story. This is one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Not only does God lay a memorial for her by naming her son Ishmael, I hear you, but she creates a memorial at this well, and she calls it the well of the living one who sees me. So that anybody who ever passes that way, and they ask the story, why is this called that, that that story would get told and perpetuated? The story of the God who sees. And then it finishes up in verses 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. So obviously she had communicated to him. This is what the name God had. And then verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And again, every time she saw that young man running around and she heard his name, Ishmael, she would remember this story. Isn't that cool? Isn't this a great story? It's just not a great story. Here's why I love this story, because I, this story is like my story, right? Both Hagar and Sarai encounter extreme difficulty. And both of them, I think, in this story at the beginning, they're feeling unseen and unheard. As if God's out there, but I'm not sure that he really cares. They're both very powerless, so they feel like they have to take control because they feel like God's not taking control, right? How many times have I been there? And, you know, I've heard it said when people get in difficulty, that they do one of three things. We either freeze, like I get really passive, and I kind of do nothing, and I kind of hope it goes away. I kind of hope to forget it. Or I will fight. I try to fix it. Or the other one is, is flight. We try to flee to get out of the circumstance, right? That's our, gen our general, those are our three responses to difficulty. And frequently when we're fleeing, what we're doing is we're not running from, just running from the situation. Many times we're running to the thing we perceive or the person we perceive as our savior. Frequently it's not God. It's like my own ideas or my own plan that's going to be my savior, right? Well, what about Abraham? Abraham to me froze. He just got passive. He almost did nothing. We've already seen that with him. Sarah. Her response was that she was going to fight it. God's not listening to me, so I'm going to fix it. I'm going to create a plan. And she ends up giving her to her husband. She decides to take control because in her mind, God is not taking control. And she's like, I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to make a solution because I don't like God's solution, which really is no solution, right? To that point, no solution. She's like, I'm tired of his solution, so I'm going to come with my own. And Hagar, hers is to flee or to flight. That's what she does. She decides to run. She was a woman on the run. And again, she had no ability to fight that situation. She had no power. So this was the thing that was left for her to do as a slave woman. And she not only, again, like all of us, if we run from difficulty, she's running from Sarai and she's running home. In her mind, home is her savior, right? Home's going to fix everything. But whatever the case, both are desperate. And I think both of them lack trust in God as El Roi because they didn't know him as that yet. They just knew him as Elohim, but they're, especially Hagar, she gets to meet him as El Roi. And so not really knowing him and trusting, they both, um, they both just try to fix it on their own. Not being patient, not willing to wait for God, thinking I know better, becoming self-reliant. How many times have you done that? And then later you look back and regret said, I wish I hadn't have done that. Have you ever felt that way? Ever been there? I think they're so like us. But what I, what I love about this story is how that everything for Hagar 
Everything changed on that road, everything. Because she had a personal encounter with the true and living God, the God who sees El Roe. And here's what I really love about this story and her encounter. After the garden, Hagar is the first person that the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, that Jesus in the Old Testament in human form, she is the first person he shows up to. Is that not cool? The most powerless, uh, mistreated, oppressed, marginalized person in this whole story, one of the most marginalized people in all of Genesis is the first person that God shows up personally to meet. He shows up to her before he ever shows up to Abraham, which he'll do in chapter 18. He shows up to her before he shows up to Moses in Exodus 3. We saw that a few weeks ago. He shows up to her before he ever shows up to Gideon or to Joshua or to David or Elijah or Daniel, any of those greats. She's the first one that God steps into her life. And what that tells me is is nobody is too small for the God who sees. Nobody is too small. And she's also the first person to name him which I think is also cool. She sees a characteristic of him. She sees his attribute, this attribute that he sees, and she's like, I now know him personally, and so she gives him this name. And I also love is that she puts her trust in him, her full trust, because he tells her to go home and submit, which a lot of us would be like, no way, right? And she does it without a word. She goes home and submits because she trusts that he is the God who sees, that he will be present with her in that situation. And even though she did not yet know him as Yahweh Rohi, as her shepherd, she trusted that he would shepherd her through that difficulty, that he would be present with her in it. Isn't that really cool? The trust that she shows. She gives her life to him. So I just wonder how many of us this morning are are in the midst of a difficult circumstance And we're wrestling with those questions, I'm not sure that God sees. Or if he sees, does he really care? Will he come to my rescue, right? Because we've all been there. And I think some of us right now are in a circumstance, and maybe we're frozen in it. Or maybe, like Sarai, we're just trying trying to fight it with all of our might. We're trying to come up with a scheme to manipulate the situation, to make it work. Or maybe we're like Hagar to where we're just running from it hoping that it'll kind of disappear. And I just want you to know if that's you this morning, that God sees and he is El Rohi, he is the God who sees. Can I just give you a few scripture? Second Chronicles sixteen nineteen tells us that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I love that passage. First Peter three twelve: the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their prayer. David, who sometimes struggled with if God heard, says in Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I tried to my God for, I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And so David could say with confidence in Psalm 34, 15, 17 to 18, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then the question he asks so many times, do you see my tears? And in Psalm 56, 8, he says this, you keep track of all of my sorrows. You've collected my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. In your book. This is the God, the God we love, the God we serve is the God who sees. And Jesus embodies that. Towards the beginning of his ministry, he's calling disciples. And 
he meets Andrew, and Andrew's like, I want you to go meet this dude named Nathaniel. He runs a Nathaniel. Uh, I think I know the Messiah, and he brings him to Jesus. When Jesus sees him, he says, you are, are a man of great integrity more than anybody of, in all of Israel. And Nathaniel is like, I have never met you. I've never seen you. You've never seen me. How can you say that? And Jesus said, when you were far off under that tree, I saw you. I saw you. So Jesus sees. So if you're here today and you're feeling alone, ignored, maybe even abandoned by God, I want you to know we serve the God who sees us, who sees me. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he cares. He is a good, good father. He's full of love and compassion. And in the right time and in the right place and in the right way, many times not how I expect, he will show up and he will act, okay? It may not be what I expect, but he will come to my rescue. And in the meantime, when he's not acting, he just offers me his presence because he's the one who's always there and the one who always sees. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling abandoned, forsaken or forgotten because you're in the middle of something and you have not seen God come through for you, I just want you to know that he is El-Rohi. He is the God who sees. Would you stand with me if you're able? Because each week I want to end with a prayer to God in these names, and so I would like you to join me in prayer to El, El Roe. So, and we're always going to do, we're going to start with adoration, we're going to go to Thanksgiving, we're going to do some confession, and go to supplication, okay? And yeah, every time I come to the confession part, I get emotional, because it's, it's my words. I mean, it's me, okay? So, let's start with adoration. El Roe. I praise you because you are the one who sees me. You see, you hear, and you care. You are fully aware of my life, and you never forget. Thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for your continual watch care over me, even when I don't see it. Forgive me for the times I have doubted your watchful eye and your loving care. Forgive me for all the times I did not even see the innumerable ways in which you visibly demonstrated your care for me. I should pay more attention to my life, and I should pay more attention to you. And finally, Lord, I acknowledge that you see me. You know my life more intimately than anyone, even myself. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. And you are well aware of my difficulties and struggles. So I cry out to you for your help in my time of need. Lord, hear my prayer. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who saw Nathaniel from afar. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to end with a time of worship. And we, among other things, there may be somebody here in in the midst of a really difficult situation. And we want to give a chance for response if that's what you need, okay? I've got some cards up here um, that kind of look like this where you just come and say, you know, you're the great I am. I'm coming to you in my point of need because I believe you here and see me, El Roe. You're Yahweh Rohi, my shepherd. I am needing your shepherding so desperately in this area of my life. And just come up and if you feel led and write down what that circumstance is and then like kind of lay that thing down and pray and ask him to help you to meet your need.
Um, I find these things for me are helpful sometimes. I'm going to have two couples up here, and they can come on up. They're going to stand at the steps. If you're needing somebody to pray for you, grab one of them and pray. Um, but we just want to, to have a time to give people a chance to, if they need to talk to God, in a real personal way to do that. You don't have to, um, but would you please join us in worship? Elohim, I just thank you for seeing us. I thank you for this truthful story that you came to s and uh, saw Hagar. Lord, we want to respond to you. Give us the courage. Give us the wisdom. Give us your presence. You are what we need. I just encourage you as we sing this song, um, just to use this time get right with the Lord, um, commit to him whatever he's leading you to, you know, you can write down on this card anything you need to. This uh, altar is open to deal with him, other people to pray with you. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, so you don't need to worry about what someone's going to think of you, you know, coming, what are the people who came with me going to think, this is you and the Lord, it's important. worthy of every song.
tell him this morning, I'm going to build my life on you. And I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. And I
feel free after the service to come up quietly and do that. Um, if, if praying with somebody would be helpful, we're going to have a couple still up here. I'll be up here if you need somebody to pray with you. So can we just end with a prayer to our Lord, uh, El Rohi, Rohi. Father, the one who sees, I thank you for that reality. Lord, I need your shepherding in every day of my life, and I love the fact that part of who you are and your character is that you watch me, you care for me, you hear me, and you come and you interact and you intervene in my life in ways I could never expect. So just help me to trust you. Help me to lean into you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who sees. Amen. All right, 12th, live this week in the reality of the God you serve, El Rui, the God who sees you. So you are sent.